Well, I give this movie a... Fans of the Fallout video game series, you know what I'm doing. Hello, interwebs, and welcome to Close Up. I'm your co-host, Joe. And I'm Ryan. Oppenheimer and Barbie just released this weekend. Based on the title of this video, you know which one we saw. Although I do plan to see Barbie this weekend. Maybe you'll hear me talk we chose about it. wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you'll hear us talk about it on a future leisure list or something. But we're here to talk about Christopher Probably. Nolan's new film, Oppenheimer. So, zooming into our medium shot now. Have you ever heard of Oppenheimer? And what were your expectations going into this one? Oh, yeah. I've definitely heard of Oppenheimer. It was actually really funny. Before this film was even announced... I knew a little bit about Oppenheimer, and I think it was even because of Eternals. I was like, why has no one made, and of course this was wrong when I said it, why has no one made a movie about Oppenheimer? I mean, they've made movies back, I think, in the 30s, and I think they made one in the 70s as well, called Fat Man and Little Boy, if I'm uh, correct. But I really wanted to see like a biopic version, like a modern biopic version of Oppenheimer, because I think his life would be very interesting to tell. And then I think three months later, there was that still of Killian Murphy or that little teaser of Killian Murphy. And then you see Oppenheimer behind him. I was so excited for it. And then every time I went to the movie theater over the past year or so, they had this stand up clock like it was a countdown to a nuke but it was for the movie Oppenheimer. Oh, wow. So this is like my most anticipated movie of the year. And I was very hyped to see this movie. I had limited exposure to Oppenheimer as a historic personality. To be honest, most of the stuff I knew about him came from epic rap battles of history when they did <laughs> him versus Thanos. Having seen the movie, that was a pretty informational video. Because I was like, oh, uh, this is a reference to that line and that line. Oh, okay. Like, I actually knew quite a lot going in from that. The other thing I knew him for even before that was the famous interview he gave in the 1960s, I believe, where he just looks like his soul has left him, just the husk of a human being after what he created. And he gives this little speech which I have some of the transcript of here. We knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed. A few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty, and to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. And with that, let's get into our close-up and <laughs> discuss this thing. This film has given me an existential crisis. I've been thinking about it non-stop for the last 24 hours. It's very rare I walk out of a movie theater just shaken to my core about what I've seen and emotionally affected that strongly. I'm... I'm pretty hard to shake. Last time I felt this way was when I finally finished Chernobyl just a couple months ago. Well, not even a couple months, a couple weeks. But anyway, when I finished Chernobyl, which is also about the fallout of nuclear devastation. So I guess it's just something about the power of nuclear technology that strikes a chord with me. It's just so mm -hmm. awe-inspiring. 
to me that the very building blocks of all life can be twisted to destroy all life when used wrong. But they can also be used for great things as well. I mean, nuclear power is pretty miraculous. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about the bomb, the weaponization of the atom. Mm-hmm. That's what this movie is about. And it's Fallout, pardon them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know when I knew this movie was going to be good? From the opening credits. Mm-hmm. When Christopher Nolan quotes Greek mythology. <laughs> the Prometheus line about him being tortured for all eternity because he gave fire to man. Uh, I know about that story very well because I studied it in school. And when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. Just whenever, you know, you quote Greek myth to me, you have me hooked right away. But it's just it's so true where, uh, like, you gave them the power to destroy everything. And like yes. you could you could argue back in the day um, Zeus had uh, a point to make, but also Zeus is kind of a dick. Uh, <laughs> he's famously a dick. There's a meme online where it's like Greek myth and it's like a super long text. And that's like Greek myth if Zeus kept it in his pants and it's like this short. That's so. <laughs> it's true. I believe this book, this movie was based off a book called American mm-hmm. Prometheus. Pretty much all the information was from that book. And from what I've read up since, pretty accurate to history of this movie. They tweaked a couple things here and there. But I agree with you right away. I was hooked by this idea of the American Prometheus, the guy who gave us more than we could handle and Mm -hmm. was punished eternally for it. Now, in the case of Oppenheimer, he wasn't punished as overtly in society, but I think he punished himself for the rest of his life. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, like I said, you go, you look at that interview, it's very famous, just how he, he just, he looks like he hasn't slept a day in 20 years. Yeah. Well, he very, very famously, and I think they uh, told it, I was getting a little worried with the opening act, first chapter when it was doing, like going on about his early life, because it was a lot of jumping around, but I think they just got all that stuff out of the way of Oppenheimer very famously had trouble sleeping throughout his entire life and regularly forgot to eat. That's why he's so thin. I read a rumor somewhere, Killian Murphy, like every day he only ate almonds or something to get that thin, which I don't believe, but. (laughs) What I heard was, I think it was Emily Blunt and Matt Damon were talking about how Killian Murphy never joined them for cast dinners because he was on such Mm. a slim diet. Like, I think, like you said, he basically just had almonds and maybe a slice of apple or something Mm -hmm. he was on bare bones diet so he never came out to cast dinners with them i believe they said they were in a very because they were in a town all together they basically all went to the same diner every night for dinner except killian they said it's not like most film shoots where somebody has a home nearby or everyone's just at a hotel and everyone's separated and eats alone no they were all kind of in a community together for the duration of their filming. So they, the cast spent a lot of time together, which they have great chemistry in the movie. So I think that's pretty apparent. They spend time together except with Killian. So he was more. Yeah. God, imagine being on that film set and being at that dinner. That'd be amazing. I'd give anything to be on that dinner. 
But yeah, I feel like um, I really love Killian Murphy's performance in this. I so am good. a huge Killian Murphy fan coming off of Peaky Blinders. I know you haven't seen it yet, and you will. Yes. Uh, you watch everything else, so I'll give you a pass. And I'll it's so funny it. because there's a few scenes where I can see Thomas Shelby poking out, his uh, who is his character in Peaky Blinders. Not in terms of how he's talking or even the way he acts, but it's the way he smokes sometimes. You can kind of see him do the same pauses he does as Tommy Shelby, but that kind of just, I feel like, adds to it as well. That's just who Killing Murphy is. But I, I loved his performance in this, kind of just like the quiet, um, to-himself scientist, but who also is very assertive and very patient with a lot of people. And it made me not... I've What I... Th- felt like they might have accidentally done in this movie is made Oppenheimer kind of look like a dick where instead there's a lot of scenes where another scientist will argue a point or try to be like hey why don't we go in this direction and everybody else is kind of dismissing him but Oppenheimer's like no 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 let's hear him out and I feel like that's a really awesome thing that they did to leave to the legacy of Oppenheimer yes my favorite thing about this movie is how much of a nuanced picture it paints of Oppenheimer, the man you could have easily mm-hmm. gone in a very black and white direction of this guy is a hero for creating the bomb or he's the greatest menace the world has ever known for creating this super weapon of mass destruction. But here we have a brilliant guy who genuinely wanted to make the world a better place, even though mm-hmm. he felt he had to make some moral compromises to do that Part of the film, I think, is that he was never really entirely sure one way or the other how he wanted his work to be used. It was kind of just, well, if they have the guts to use this thing, I'm reasonably confident people will see how stupid warfare is. So I think he kind of wanted them to use it at least once just to just to see how bad it could be. But it was only after they used it that he realized they'd keep using it. And that's when he became more of an anti-nuclear activist, or he used his position to advocate for less nuclear armament. He hated the idea of an arms race with the Soviet Union. He definitely loathed the idea of the H-bomb with its increased destructive capability. He's like, okay, we're just making this thing a lot worse now, and Mm -hmm. I'm doing what I can to control it. So you you have once again, but the nuance also extends to his personal life as well, where mm-hmm. you know he's he's a guy who has multiple affairs with his wife uh, on his wife, and he's kind he can be yeah. kind of a dick to people. He's a little bit distant and cold in many ways, but he's also but he's also like super in the like he helps unionize the college, and when he's talking mm-hmm. to Harry Truman, like well, what should I do with Los Alamos? Give it back to the Indians. Mm-hmm. He's got. You know, he's very idealistic and I love that some scene ways. so much. Yeah. Gary Oldman is a legend. And was I was Gary like, Oldman? I, I literally... It was Gary even, Oldman. I yeah. literally didn't even yes. notice. President Truman. And I saw him, I was like, absolutely. Yes. Just more veteran actors. Just keep bringing them out. Bring all of Hollywood into this movie. Um, and I think he did very great. Very great. I think he did great <laughs> subtle acting as well as President Truman um, yeah. without being too over the top in his one scene. But to go back to Oppenheimer and how his story is told, I think very much so 
at the beginning, everybody was on board with this because it was a race against the clock against Hitler and Germany and the yes. fact that, hey, we need to build this before they do because if they do, everyone is screwed. Uh, and yep. Sadly, they didn't find out after the war that they were nowhere close to building an atom bomb, uh, but they were already in like ahead into production. I think they said two years they were already into it and Germany had surrendered, but they made they built this thing and they spent two billion dollars on it. They still won enemy in Japan. Um, and I know in the movie they said they're willing they're going to surrender anytime, um, like any day soon. But if you're kind of like a true historian, you know that Japan was very at the time, Japan was very um adamant on not surrendering until they absolutely had to. Yeah. So that's why it was sadly necessary to drop not one but two bombs to show that, hey, we've done this once, but we can also do it again. But the controversy, I think, was that mainly that they dropped it on civilian targets. Yes. Mm-hmm. They did debate in the movie, oh, let's maybe we could do it on what? a military target. And they're like, well, there's none big enough. So but yeah. we still need to make a point. That's one of my favorite scenes because... The secretary is such an asshole in it where he says, I think he says we can't drop it on Tokyo because Kyoto. me and the wife or Tio, yeah, me Kyoto. and the wife honeymoon there and it's a beautiful country. And there was just like there was this awkward laughter in my theater. Where yeah, it was just I, like, I had the he same did thing. not just say that. Well, it was it's the first like, thing he said was, well, we crossed Kyoto off the list because of its cultural significance to the Japanese mm-hmm. people. Also, my wife and I went for our honeymoon there. It's a great place. <laughs> just like, yeah, just the, like, like, yeah, he, the cultural significance is one thing, but also his personal biases saved the city. Mm-hmm. It's like he literally could have killed everybody in that city just on a whim, but just because he and his the wife honeymoon there. The absolute gall of him to say that. It's just like, yeah. oh my God. Funny thing about that line, actually, I heard that I was, re- I've been doing a lot of reading on this movie the last mm-hmm. couple of days, but Christopher Nolan. Basically, he encouraged all the cast members to learn about their real-life counterparts for the film. Mm -hmm. And the original script basically just said that thing about, oh, yeah, we're going to not do it because of its cultural significance. But the actor found out that this character and like his character's um, main guy and the the wife, that they honeymoon there in Kyoto. And he's like, can I can I include that? And they're like, sure, it'll work. That's hilarious. They just thought it was. He just found that out in his research, and he's like, yeah, can I include this? This would be an interesting detail, mm-hmm. Dad. Sure, why not? Wow, I love that. Yeah, um, I think what really sells this movie is not the building of the bomb. Uh, I mean, it's like it's a great part of the movie, and then the actual detonation itself, the effect is, I mean, we'll talk about it later. I don't want to yeah. blow by it. But I feel like the third act is what really makes this a phenomenal film. Yes. It's even though some I feel like there's going to be some critics out there, very few that will say it's a drag, but it does show just how adamant and ruthless the American government was against people who did not have right wing ideology at the time and were even associated with communism or just people that they knew that were a part of communists. I mean, the fact that they wanted that they made this fake document or one person made this fake document and handed it off to uh, someone who pissed off Oppenheimer to hand off to someone else who pit, who Oppenheimer pissed off 
excuse me. And then they were like, oh, we should give him a trial, but don't make it a real trial because that would give him a platform and he could actually win this. Let's put them in yeah. this shack of a room and have it be very private. And then I get, I think they did this well where they, Oppenheimer actually hired a very good lawyer, but he was just in this kangaroo court that yeah. they were just able to bend the laws so much in their favor. And to be fair, Oppenheimer got off fucking easy. He could have gone to jail. He could have, I mean, McCarthyism was hot at the time. And yeah, he did get off like somewhat easy, but he still got screwed over. He did get rewarded later on when yes, John, John F. Kennedy was one of the people who sympathized with him at the time. And then when he became president, he's the one who gave Oppenheimer some That was some a funny part. Yeah. yeah. It's like, but, uh, who voted I, against me? Oh, this un, young up-and-coming Senator John F. Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the few things I, I take issue with in the movie just a, a little bit. Is that court, is the Senate hearing section? Because for the longest time in the movie, and I know this is just Nolan being Nolan playing with non-linear mm-hmm. timelines, but I didn't understand what was going on for most of the movie. Now, yeah. you could argue okay, yeah, you know, he's not treating me like I'm stupid. I keep watching. I'll figure it out. And I did because mm-hmm. the story, when the story finally caught up, it's like, oh, so this is what is going on. But you're cutting back here so much. And what's happening here is a question that I can only ask so many times over the course of three hours before I figure out what's going on. It yeah. would have been nice to know that this was a Senate hearing for Oppenheimer security clearance a lot earlier. Now, you know, it did tie in really well. It does all pay off eventually, but it's, it's a, just a little bit grading. It's that confusing I, at first. Yeah, yeah. It's confusing. And I didn't, and I didn't know like the black and white versus the color. I'm like, okay, so Oppenheimer, when he's being interviewed in that room, I got the impression that it wasn't too long before that Senate hearing, which was in black and white. So I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm like, okay, so is black and white the most modern? And if so, is this color thing a while back? But Oppenheimer looks older here. So what's, what's actually happening? What's the order of events? I'm like, I'm trying to piece it together I from know. most of the movie, which once again, that's just Nolan's thing. You don't go into a Nolan movie expecting a linear story. So it's, mm-hmm. yeah, I can only say so much there, but it's just as a viewer, it's kind of frustrating trying to figure it out. Yeah, I sort of, by the end of the movie, not at the beginning, I just kind of assumed that the black and white stuff was through uh, Louis Strauss, Robert Downey Jr.'s character's uh, POV yeah. for it. Because at first I okay. was like, okay, the black and the white is in the future, the colors in the past. But then we cut to a part where it's their whole dinner and it's them in the middle, like talking about how oh, Russia has a bomb and they... We need to start doing hydrogen bombs, but it's still on black yes. and white, so you're a little confused. But then I realized we follow uh, Strauss's character into that scene, and then we kind of follow him out at the same time. So that's kind they of also, the way I pictured it. They also showed that scene again later in color. Yes, they did. I don't recall if it was from Oppenheimer's point of view that mm-hmm. time, but that's a very yeah. interesting piece of color theory there. I think it was because there's that part you- where he's looking at the map and it looks like it's underwater. Which you could argue is also Nolan trying to say that Oppenheimer could see more of the full scale of the world and all its nuances mm-hmm. and colors, where Strauss is very narrow-minded, sees the world in black and white. Mm-hmm. 
which for his character makes sense. Robert Downey Jr. is incredible in this movie. Oh my god, he's so good. I just watched a video he did about Vanity Fair. You know, when they do all those videos of actor looks on upon their career and talks about it, and I skipped all his early stuff, even Iron Man, because I know he's talked about Iron Man for 10 years. Yeah. And I started the part where he talked about, first he talked about the judge, which I love that part. He, he even brought up a part where it was like, Warner Brothers knew me from Sherlock Holmes, and they told me, hey, we have this script. We don't know if it's going to do well, but go do it. And he said he had a blast about it, and he loved taking that risk. And then he made a joke like, but we don't do that anymore. And then they cut to the Oppenheimer part, where uh, he talked about how, when he was talking to Chris Nolan about it, he said, um, this character has so many subtleties and flaws uh, that are so underneath, and I want you to play that, and he's not quippy. Don't bring, like, take all that stuff that you've learned over your years and just get rid of it. I don't want you to do that. And he said that was a challenge for him, but he welcomed it. Yes. And he said he had a very open and honest relationship with Chris Nolan and that it was a, like a blast to do. And I lo- I soaked up every minute of Robert Downey Jr. on the screen because I did not want his last like big screen thing to be Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> I'm glad, and not to say that he's retiring, but I'm just glad that I was able to see him in this. The way he's able to play this sort of, oh, that's how he described it. He said he was charming, but only charming when he's being sleazy. He's not a popular guy, but yeah. he, oh, his true self only comes out when he's a bit of a schemer. And he said that was the challenging part because Robert Downey Jr. is a very charming guy, but he had to play it yes. as he wasn't until he was scheming and being manipulative with others. And to watch him sort of be behind the scenes and play all this subtlety is really good. I could see him getting nominated for a supporting actor. You'd better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Strauss, the funny thing about him is that you could argue he had a point. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, he was the one mostly responsible for pointing out Oppenheimer's inconsistencies of character, which, yeah. from our perspective, is just a three-dimensional person not really knowing what they want to do, not really having made up their minds about their morality, their moral stance on these issues. But to him, he just sees Oppenheimer as this wishy-washy guy, this egotist who turned the whole scientific community against them, was totally for the bomb when it was his idea, goes against the bomb when it's the other, I forget his name, Teller, I think, Teller's idea to build the H-bomb. Yes. It's like, oh yeah, I'm, you're you're for it when you're in charge, but now that you're on the outs, oh, now you're mm-hmm. trying to screw over the entire American nuclear program mm-hmm. or make us toned down or like oh there's a spy in Los Alamos and you didn't know about it your security clearance was pretty bad which we do see in the movie they weren't the best with security but it was also a necessary evil to get things done they couldn't do it the way the military wanted to do it because it was like time is of the essence here and we can't compartmentalize too much otherwise no one's going to know what like the right hand's not going to know what the left hand's doing so there were a lot of reasons for it but I did like how Strauss could communicate why Oppenheimer mm-hmm. could be seen as not that great in hindsight. Yeah, and his little speech to um, Jan Han Solo <laughs> near the end where uh, oh, that's he did who that good was. too. I knew I knew yeah. his face from somewhere. Like, what mm-hmm. the? He did good too. 
Um, what's his name? Oh my crap! Um, I have the list of cast here. Uh, he better not be far down the list. But yeah, his little speech to him at the end about why he did what he did is not because, like, it is. You can clearly tell he's trying to hide that it's out of pure jealousy, but he has reasons. He has motives. It's like he he knew all the security risk. He knew uh, Alden Ehrenreich. Alden he knew Ehrenreich. all. He knew what Oppenheimer was doing at the time was wrong. See, it's tough to judge what Strauss did now when we have all the information, right? Yes. It's years after the Cold War. Nothing fucking happened. But back then, you know, it's a few years after World War II. Germany is gone. The Nazis are gone. Who is the next possible, quote unquote, evil to combat the United States? It is Russia. And hey, they're probably going to build bombs. So we need to build bombs as well. They did the build guy a bomb. They're saying, doing nuclear and tests. They did. Exactly. And the guy who created the atom bomb is saying, no, we shouldn't create hydrogen bombs because they're going to create hydrogen bombs, which to him, which Strauss is thinking, hey, I know you know a bunch of communists, uh, communists. So the fact that you're trying to make us look weaker and have Russia have more bombs than us makes me a little suspicious. Even though I know for a fact you're not a communist, I can somehow twist the... So in his way, he was trying to do what was best for his country. And even Robert Downey Jr. said this. He said, like, even now, I'm still flip-flopping if he was right or wrong on the side of history. And I think Christopher Nolan beautifully explained that in this movie where there wasn't a right or wrong person in this movie. There was just, we needed to make a bomb. We made a bomb. And a lot of people regret making it. And a lot of people are very happy that they made it. Yes. I thought one of the coolest scenes with his communism affiliations is when they're interrogating him in that Mm -hmm. closed room hearing. And they ask him if he's still friends with Chevalier, his communist friend. He's like, yes. Even though his lawyer is like, don't say it. Don't say Mm -hmm. it. Even yeah, when he didn't he's being, want to lie or something, yeah. Even when he's being grilled, he still values truth and honesty enough that he's, he'll still mm-hmm. admit he associates with communists. Because for Oppenheimer, see, this is why I think this movie is still very applicable to today, even though this story happened 70 years ago. It's because today, just like in this era, in that era of McCarthyism, the Red Scare, our world is very preoccupied with binaries, black and white. Mm-hmm. You are or you aren't. You're you're a communist or you're not. You're a racist or a homophobe or you're not. You're 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 a democrat or you're a republican, right wing, left wing, you're whatever. You're either this or you're not. Mm-hmm. But Oppenheimer was like and also if you have multifaceted opinions on things People don't understand that. It's like you're either for this or you're against this. Why can't you be a little bit more nuanced with your opinion or or change your mind? Mm -hmm. We don't allow for that in politics nowadays because we call those people wishy-washy or we say they're not good decision makers or leaders because they change their minds. They can't commit to Mm -hmm. an ideal and stick with it. Neutrality in the terms of politics is never a good thing. Morally, yeah. it's a good thing. I think everybody could learn from neutrality. I've myself identified as a neutral political person, but 
Yeah, it's not I even mean, neutral. It's, it's just nuance. It's just the yeah, fact exactly. that it's just the fact that you can't change your mind at all. And mm-hmm. and Oppenheimer was devoted to honesty, even at the cost of his own career, because he mm-hmm. wasn't willing to denounce communism, or at least his associations with communists. Because he's like, you know what, communism, as I see it, is pretty dogmatic, and I don't like the communists any more than I like the guys who are persecuting me right now. That's mm-hmm. not to say I didn't have communist sympathies because I liked a lot of what they were doing and they were my friends. I didn't mm-hmm. like it enough to join the party though. And it's like oh that gosh. those are the kind of that's the kind of nuance that the people who persecuted him that didn't understand. One, that one scene where Oppenheimer is at his friend's house and I don't know if it's when he brought the baby over. But it's when he uh, is talking about something on the project and one of his communist friends says something on the likes of... Chevalier. Yeah, yeah, Chev- yeah the Chevalier incident. He says something uh, of the means of, you know, if we had got like this information over to some of my friends over in Russia, you know, they'd be able to help out quite a bit. And the camera just stays on Killian Murphy's back the whole, almost the whole time. And it's just, it's a brilliant directing moment and a brilliant acting moment where you see Killian Murphy's like head pop up, just like, did I just hear that? And he slowly turns his head over and it's just completely silent of these two actors just staring at each other like, I know what you're saying, but like, I'm good right now. And they're like, they're talking in code because they're friends, but they can't outright say what they want to say because they'll both put people in danger. That to me, was the most tense I felt during the movie besides when the bomb got dropped. I was like, oh my fucking God. I just... Come to think of it, I was talking about how he values honesty before, but he does lie a couple times in this movie. Mm -hmm. But it's usually for... He's got his own values, for sure. Yeah, He did lie about Chevalier to protect him, even though he's like, well, you know, in hindsight, I knew I should have reported him right away. But you you see in that scene that he... Mm-hmm. He knew what he, he knew what he was getting at, but he chose to defend him anyway. He also lied to uh, Casey Affleck's character about it mm-hmm. as well. He wouldn't tell the Groves about him either. He was it's like, oh, maybe it was somebody else. There were there were a couple people involved, so he was willing mm-hmm. to lie for. His, he also lied to his wife until, well, more by omission. That still counts, yeah. Though. But you know, until a certain <laughs> point when he didn't. You know, then he was honest with her. Well, he, but, I think he, he told her about Jean uh, before the trial, but he'd never told her about the other affair. <laughs> That's the uh, other thing. Because no, he not, says something like you knew about her. Like you knew like it happened. He's like, yes, but I didn't think you'd bring it up in court or something like that. Like, That's I what I took her, from it. But it could be the other way around. I believe she said, yeah, well, we've talked about this before. And she said, well, yeah, but now you just told it to history. Mm. So that was her problem with yeah, it. Is now she's she, pissed about. She, he aired their dirty laundry all for history to see mm-hmm. on official yeah. record. It's very Which much sort of, it's really funny how I kind of compare Oppenheimer to Alexander Hamilton a little mm-hmm. bit, where he has his own weird twists and morals of he just wants to do what's best for his country and Alexander Hamilton, very famously, he had an affair as well, and he had some political rivals who were trying to 
I mean, this is all in the play. I don't know how much of this is real. I have the biography with me, but I haven't got to that part yet where um, they were going to expose him for this because he was paying off the husband from his own money, of course, but they would have spun it to say, oh, he's using American money yeah. from it. And then very famously, Alexander Hamilton wrote a pa- uh, the Reynolds pamphlet, basically saying, I had an affair with this woman. Uh, politically, I am just and nothing is wrong with me. At home, my morals are corrupt. I And he basically okay. outed himself and saying, yes, I had an affair. And uh, very famously, his wife, um, uh, Elizabeth, was did not speak to the press for like years because the whole, like they say in the song, like the whole world knows how you like, the whole world knows what you've done now. You didn't have to do this, but you like publicized it. And in his eyes, he said, nobody's going to out me, but me. It just, it, it's, it's weird yeah. like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I also liked in that scene with Groves, now that you're talking about it, is they, they talked about how they nearly didn't want to hire him in the first place was because he had the communist affiliations and he was a womanizer and kind of a mm-hmm. troublemaker, like when he unionized, tried to help unionize the college. And there's that scene. Trying to poison his teacher. <laughs> tried to poison his teacher. And this is all on his records. And then Groves was looking at the record and they ask him, would you clear Oppenheimer? based on the standards mm. of today. And he's flipping through the things, and he's like, based on the standards of today, no. But I also that's wouldn't a great, have cleared any of them. So That's a great scene as well, and great acting on Matt Damon's part, because he takes so much time until he answers to read through it, like he knows the rules and all that, but he takes his time yes. to be like, okay, how do I answer this truthfully, but not also fuck over my friend who helped us win the war? Yes. In a certain way. And I love the way he delivers it as well. It's like based on the terms and conditions of something that was written after the war or he says something like that. No, I would not have hired him, but I wouldn't have hired any of them. (laughs) Well, that's another thing that speaks to today as well, is that when you're looking through things with a modern lens and our modern morality and our modern systems of government and Mm -hmm. checks and balances and law, it's very easy to look back on anything even a couple years ago, decades ago, and say, oh, they got it completely wrong. What what the hell were they doing? Why were these people acting this way or dealing with these mm-hmm. people? Or, like, we judge their morality from our high horse. Like, people a couple decades from now won't do the same with us. Everything looks better in hindsight or yeah. worse, in as it may be in this case. At the time, his communist affiliations weren't a problem. And now that communism mm-hmm. was out of favor in the 50s, well, then suddenly his communist friends were a problem. Nobody cared about that as much in the for- in the 40s when he was working on it. They're like, well, yeah. we're a little suspicious of this. We don't really know what it is yet. But the Red Scare wasn't a thing. Communism was just something mm-hmm. the FBI had kind of on its watch list. But it and wasn't I hate, like... I mean, this is more in a sense to what happened in real life, but I hate that they use that against him in court. Jason Clark, the prosecutor, who does an amazing job yeah. uh, being one of those sh- shitty lawyers. <laughs> I mean, he's a great lawyer, but on the wrong side. Yeah. And just basically saying, so you've known these communists all your life, and it just being like, communist, communist, you're a communist. And it just goes to, sh- and it's, it's actually written beautifully and done well in this movie that just shows how blind people are when they use the morals of modern day went trying to judge something over 10 years ago or even longer. Yeah. 
it's just like, well, it wasn't a problem back then. So like, how can you judge me on it now? It's like when people try to cancel 50% of Hollywood comedians and stand-up comedians, it's like those jokes were acceptable. If they're still making material like that today, fine. But they made the material yeah. 20, 30 years ago when nobody cared. Exactly. So yeah. what do you like judge the people for who they are today, not what they did, unless what they did was actually heinous and mm-hmm. like, or they actually hurt people in a yeah. meaningful way. Exactly. Just, if like, there was we no gotta, actual harm done, then yeah, we got to take things with some nuance. Some things mm-hmm. in the past are actively harmful and we should be vigilant about them. Other things are, we're making mountains out of molehills, which mm-hmm. is most things I hear about personally. But I unless was, you're an ant, then a molehill is pretty big. Yeah. I read oh, a comment like that and a part of me was like, huh? <laughs> I was like, well, he's not wrong. Like everybody in the replying to his comment were like, shut up, shut up, shut up. And there was one person where he's like, well, he's not wrong. <laughs> True. If you think about it. Let's see. I had uh, another comment about, um, about his Senate hearing. Um, I also thought Strauss it was good when or Oppenheimer's Oppenheimer's. Uh, I also uh, thought it was great when Emily Blunt when uh, got interviewed by the guy because mm-hmm. just be- just or the scene just before that I really liked. I was waiting the, for it. Like, I was waiting oh, for her put, to have like a great scene. Like oh, she's a phenomenal put, actress. Like oh, you're gonna put your uh, alcoholic wife that you've cheated on so many times on the stand. Like she's mm-hmm. gonna screw you over, and he's like don't be a child. We've been through fire and hell together and mm-hmm. you don't know our relationship. So don't pretend like you do just based She's on. She's a me. very strong female character in this. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I think one of my favorite, well, I love the moment when she's turning it back on, uh, mm-hmm. on Jason Clark. I think you said it was, and uh, yep. she's, he's interrogating her about her communist affiliation card. That she mm-hmm. had so long ago, and she's like, "Well, I had so long ago. I don't, I don't even remember. You're yeah. trying to, you're trying to make me admit to something I don't even know. Mm-hmm. You're, but it was a communist card. It might have been. I got rid of it seven years ago. But it was from, and it just kept saying like communist. And a part of me was like, "You fucking lawyer. <laughs> like, he plays it so well. It was like, you son of a bitch. It's entrapment. Uh, it is entrapment. Yeah, but it's not like a real court session. So the other lawyer." lawyer couldn't be like objection or what i mean he's tried to object before and the line of one of the chairmen saying it's already in front of us so why don't we just read it into the record i was like oh you fucker i was like that is that is entrapment that is bullshit oh my god fucking american politics in the 50s man jesus uh, except for John F. Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, Kennedy had his well, problems, knows, too. He, but he might have had his problems. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe. Sorry. <clears throat> oh, for one. <laughs> but, yeah, the other line I really loved of hers that I've been thinking about a lot is when Gene Tatlock died and he's crying in the woods mm-hmm. and she goes to find him and she's like, what, like, what the hell happened? And he's basically like, oh, yeah, my mistress died. Mm-hmm. And, he, and she basically gets him to smarten up and she's like, don't commit the sin and then make us feel sorry for you. Like yeah. you don't get to do that, which I think is a great metaphor for the entire movie. Just like, yeah, don't, don't commit the sin and then expect us to feel mm-hmm. sorry for you, which he doesn't. He never Oppenheimer for the rest of his life. He never said he regretted it, but you could tell mm-hmm. that he, he did have a lot of regrets. He just, he didn't ask for sympathy because he knew what he did. Mm-hmm. 
So he always kind of rode that line. He never asked for public pity. Although, as she does say later in the movie, he did take those blows to his reputation on purpose because he kind of wanted to be punished publicly for what he did. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's, that's why he didn't mind Strauss attacking him and that's why he never really fought back because I think on a certain level he felt he deserved it. Yeah. That he would get off mostly scot-free enough enough that he could go on living his life. He wouldn't get arrested or anything, but also... Mm-hmm. So the he record be a part was a bit, of the government. Yeah, but also so the record was a bit more balanced. He took mm-hmm. the blows on purpose, and that's why his yeah. wife was like, "Well, why aren't why aren't you fighting back?" And he's like, "Well, mm-hmm. I really liked me. Emily Blunt in this as well. I was I was just waiting for because she was great in the few like dialogue scenes he had, but then there was parts where she was really showing her alcoholism, and then parts where she was subtly showing her alcoholism, mm-hmm. and then that scene where she defends Oppenheimer." I think it's great because it shows how much anxiety she has. And then she just kind of snaps into it. So good. And (laughs) I, (laughs) some I know some people are like, why do they make her like, who do you get to play the alcoholic wife? Maybe the girl who played the girl on the train, who's a famously (laughs) alcoholic ex-wife. It's like a famous book, but also it's a movie Emily Blunt did in 2015. Um, but yeah, I thought she did it amazing. And then for all the four scenes she was in, I thought Florence Pugh did really well. Because Florence of was the, a standout as well. Yeah, she was a standout. And I think it's the chemistry between her and Killian Murphy. It's mm-hmm. not the fact that they have this amazing dialogue and these amazing scenes together, but they just represent that one like love you have in your life or that one flame that you just can't let go of and you just care about. I mean, there's even jokes where it's, it's like I told you not to bring me flowers, and then she like expects flowers anyway, but throws them out. Every and it's time. like I told you not. It's like it's like I told you not to. This got a chuckle in my theater. But it's like I don't want to see you ever again. But you always call me, and like that got a chuckle. <laughs> and I think that I got a chuckle from like some couples as well. Well, don't answer. I'll always answer. Yeah, I'll always answer. So it's like yeah, it's just they can't get rid of each other until Oppenheimer's too deep into the. Bill in the atom bomb, he says, I have to let you go. And but you said you'll always answer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, like odd. And then she, I believe, commits suicide. I, th- yep. I felt like watching that scene where, is, where he was trying to explain it, it's weird because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. So the dialogue is turned down and the music's turned up. So a part of me was like, he either believes she killed her, herself or she was murdered by someone of like the communist party because you see you don't see a person but you see someone's arm and a black glove holding her head down in the water. Oh, like I missed that. Real quick. I real that. quick. Yeah. And I, and because he he also brings up the part where there was a note but she didn't sign it. So it's yeah. kind of He said there was a note. I think the story was she overdosed on some kind of drug and then drowned herself. Mm. And yeah. then she, she signed a note, which would be believable because she was clearly a very depressed person mm-hmm. with not many tethers to mm-hmm. happiness or a life worth living, except Oppenheimer, even though she pushed him away at every opportunity. Yeah. So when he finally left, that was it for her. But. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah. I but she did oh, great. Yeah. But it's an interesting theory about uh, she was murdered by the Communist Party. I mean, that's or my theory the Ameri- about it. I don't know. It was, yeah. or it's more likely the American government trying mm-hmm. to tie up loose ends, keep their asset on focus. 
Yeah, I don't know how much of it is actually implied, but that's what my take was coming out of it. That reminds me of another great joke that got a chuckle in my theater was when the one scientist is like, I quit. Like, well, what's what's going to happen? Oh, we're just going to have to kill him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, and he's like, joking. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, oh, God. Yeah, I thought Matt Damon did very well. I feel like he's very underappreciated because I feel like he was just in so much in the 90s and 2000s. He's a very good actor. He's so good. When, I mean, he's look up parts and I mean, Jason Bourne, he's great in that as well. But The Martian, he's really good in. Um, I haven't seen it, but I've heard he's really good in Interstellar. And oh, gosh, what's that other movie that was on my brain? Oh, uh, the remake of True Grit. He's got like a small role in that, but I feel like he does a decent job in that as well. I don't remember he that. Play, he plays the, um, I, don't I think his name's LaBeouf. He movie. plays like the sheriff that goes along with Haley Steinfeld and Jeff Bridges' character. He's like, he's okay. not that, he's not like, he's a, he's a side character, but he's pretty good. I think he got nominated as well. I've been hearing a story about Matt Damon in this movie. He, he's saying how... Lately, he's been in couples counseling with his wife, and the agreement Uh-oh. he the agreement he made with her was okay. I'm going to take a step back from acting for a little while, unless Nolan calls. Yeah, <laughs> which he did, and that's why he mm-hmm. did this movie. Makes sense. I mean, that's weird to say because he just reunited with Ben Affleck, <laughs> so I feel like that's a lie. <laughs> well, I mean, he filmed those a couple of years ago, probably. Oh, probably, yeah. But I, I mean, think, true, he's been a lot. I mean, yeah, yeah and I guess his... So ba- based on this story, he'll his, be taking a step I actually don't back. know what his wife does, but it doesn't matter. Me neither. That's probably better. He's not I just hope it's not. I just, ho- I just hope it's better than a Tom Brady situation. Yeah, Tom, Tom Brady, Brady famously, like, he retired, and then he was going to unretire, be, and then his wife divorced him because he promised he would retire. But, like she doesn't do anything and she hated being alone with the kids all the time. But like, I wouldn't complain if I made, if my husband made a hundred million dollars a year, but Hey, that's just me. Well, I think she's a mom, anyway, isn't she? I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Whatever. They're divorced now. I bet they're both happy. So the point is he made promises and he didn't keep them. He promised He's the he'd... greatest football player. Ever. I don't care. I'm not getting into it. <laughs> exactly. He had his fame. Be a family man. Get over it. <laughs> anyway, Let's see what else. What else? Is there anything to do with? I yeah. I hope definitely. I know for a fact. Christopher, don't. I can name everything that's going to get nominated in this movie. Best directing, best picture, obviously. Best actor, best, best supporting actor. Uh, supporting actor, visual effects, sound design. Those are the six that I know are guarantees. Sound and okay. maybe music. Music's great. Uh, good time to talk about audio balancing was off again. I don't know what it is with <laughs> Nolan. And you alluded to this a little earlier, but I don't understand why he does mixes this way. Because yeah. I don't know about... Even in my... I didn't see it in IMAX. I saw it in AVX, which is just a step down. Oh, God. But <laughs> What? It's not like I saw it in regular... No, it's just like, it's like you get all the sound, but less of the, like, it just, it's so overpowering. I'm just saying, I saw it in that, and even then I had to strain for the dialogue. So, and this movie's all dialogue, which doesn't Mm. help. 
So I feel like yeah. there's a lot I missed. I definitely need to see it again. Mm-hmm. It's Nolan, could you please stop? I mean, I don't think as it was as, as aggressive. Yeah, Tenet, it's Tenet not as was especially as bad. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. yeah, it still it needs. Ugh, it's frustrating. As I still think the sound design though is very good. I know the, I know the no, mixing design, part is not great. Mixing That's is bad. I mean. Sound yeah. design is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The yeah. Uh, Lewid Gornson, who did the music for both Tenet, but also the Black Panther movies and the, some of the Creed movies, did the score for for this movie, and I think it's it's phenomenal. So, yes, I just want to say I also think he did the Mandalorian as well. Yes, I was gonna say, and I think he did uh, Joker too. No, or was uh, it? I don't. Maybe not. That might be someone else. He did. Okay. We're the nope. Millers. <laughs> nope. Okay, I got that wrong. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's won an Oscar. Ludwig. Good for him. What do you want it for? Come on, IMDb, load. Is my internet about to go out? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, no, here we go. He won for Black Panther, the first one. Speaking of going out, speaking of internet going out, last night at my theater, we had a storm in the area last night, and my theater power went out in the middle of Oppenheimer. (gasps) Yeah. No. Yep, about halfway through the movie, things shut down for about half an hour. But the annoying thing was they got them enough power to come back up that they played the audio for like 15, 20 minutes. So okay. we, like, we were just sitting in a, in a lit theater listening to the audio, and I was just kind of listening to it, scribbling some notes in my notepad for you know, this review or my online review in my blog. But So yeah, this is like 15, 20 minutes before they got the movie back on. And then they tried to rewind it, and they had it in the perfect spot, and we're like, stop. But then they kept going, like, two scenes back. Uh, and then they just played it so there. So they did had, rewind it for you. They did, but we had to That's watch. That's the difference between your town and Yellen Dundas when I had to do yeah. Across the Spider-Verse. But, we but had to, to be fair with that theater, it's Toronto, so like. Yeah, they had more anyway. schedules to keep. Mm-hmm. Point it, they had to, we had to rewatch two and a half scenes again. So it already turned, it turned a three hour movie into a three and a half hour movie, which may bias my review about the pacing a little bit because I'm like, oh, I had to watch like half an hour of this movie again. What scenes do you remember? It was one of the scenes when he met Einstein. It was the scene when he met oh, Einstein. Like early on? No, or it was uh, when, when he, he brought him the paper. When he gave him the paper, and then he was talking to Groves about something, and then they were recruiting okay. guys for the project in, a, in Los Alamos. Mm-hmm. And one of the scenes I really enjoyed was when he got his one friend, he was in military uniform, and, uh, and he was talking about, okay, this is how we're going to divide out the different mm-hmm. sections of this. And his friend was like, well, f- first ditch the uniform. <laughs> like, you're, you're a scientist. <laughs> yeah. be, be a scientist. But I also love the line that his friend said. I have the quote here. He said something like, Oppenheimer asked him why he didn't want to join the project with him. And his friend said, I don't wish the culmination of three centuries of physics to be a weapon of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. Which, good enough reason not to do it, I think. Also, the fact I didn't know before this movie that they could have, there was a very, very, very small chance, near zero, that they could have lit the atmosphere on fire. That was one of the most mind-blowing things in this entire movie. And it wasn't even just the idea that, oh, the atomic bomb could destroy the world. 
we've grown up in the atom since the in the aftermath of the atomic yeah, we knew age. That. We, we know that. I didn't know they could have destroyed the whole world off the first test. Mm-hmm. The first time they used the bomb just in the Nevada desert could have destroyed the whole world because it could have oh. created a chain reaction whereby I believe it's you smash the atoms and then the nuclei bounce off those in other in other mm-hmm. atoms, which launches those nuclei off and it just it's it's a and the chain reaction just never stops. Yeah. Until it engulfs the entire atmosphere. <sighs> Near zero chance of that. It might not happen. That scared the shit out of me. I don't know what it is. It's always been that way as a kid, just but world ending disasters. Just like that could have happened. Just like, uh, just like shakes me to my core. Even like there's that, there's all, it's a joke now, but it's on the means like when you were 10 years old and someone told you the sun's going to blow up in 10 billion years, you're like, no, (laughs) just the most existential crisis. One of my favorite parts about that one though, is just, and then they say, then they say, don't worry. The earth's going to be dead long before that. And you're like, no, (laughs) I just love the scene just before the bomb goes off when his friend Mm. comes up to him. And he's like, yeah, I'll uh, bet you 10 bucks that it does blow up the atmosphere. <laughs> and then uh, I think yeah. Rose was like, what's that about? Oh, just gallows humor. Yeah. He's like, oh, and then he's like kind of brushes off. He's like, oh, the chances are near zero. Near zero? He's <laughs> like, well, that's the best we could do. He's like, I would like it to be zero. Eh, nothing's ever concrete with <laughs> theoretical physics. That's another big theme of the movie is that theory only takes you so far until you have to mm-hmm. put things into practical use to actually see how they go. Yeah. Cause he's a theoretical, he, he, that's one of the first things when he gets to his university and he meets the, uh, the one guy who's doing machine work in the shop. He's like, well, I, mm-hmm. I, I deal in theoretical quantum mechanics, but your guys actually build the machines do and do the work. Mm-hmm. We need, we need to combine the theoretical with the practical so mm-hmm. he needed to become more of a pragmatist. Even at Los Alamos, he had to work with guys who had more mechanical knowledge than he did. Yeah. This movie in lesser hands could have been terrible, where Oppenheimer would have gone to those guys and be like, hey, we need to work together. And some other writer director would have been like, you're just theoretical. We don't need you. But it shows like the real world of like synergy. scientists and just and synergy, but just also adulthood where it's like, hey, we should work together. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Like, there's r- literally no reason for, for us to yeah. not work together because we're all scientists. Exactly. Scientists, at the end of the day, I believe, want science to come to fruition. They love mm-hmm. testing their theory. Like, theorists love theorizing, but they also love seeing their theories proven or disproven. They want to know one way or the other. And mm-hmm. engineers love building things. And if they have, if they can test things... Great, we learned something new, and we can use that something new to learn to further the next thing. And that's that's how science works. That's how it keeps giving us new cool things over and over, and you only get that through teamwork, through collaboration of theorists and engineers. And you're right, it's, it's good that they, they showed there was a healthy relationship between the two sides. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with Teller, the, the guy yeah. who he butt heads with the most... He still was on the project, some of it for like, I mean, for most of the time because he was really smart and they needed him. And he's like, look, if you stay, I'll talk to you about your H-bomb thing once yeah. a week. Just, mm-hmm. just us two. Yeah. yeah. 
Have they made H-bombs? I think they have, right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. I'm just making sure. <laughs> yeah, they, they did do that. I thought it was interesting how Oppenheimer wasn't... I always assumed he was more into the science side of mm-hmm. of this project, but really this movie shows that he was the director of it. He was the one guy who understood enough about quantum mechanics in the U.S. that he could try to he could bring everybody together and understand all sides of it but he was also a great speaker and coordinator that was his main job he was the director not like the like the one inventor of the atom bomb well that's what i i didn't realize until this movie was he was the guy to bring over quantum mechanics to america yes like he was the guy to bring it over and teach it not the fact that america didn't want to learn it but he was just so fascinated about it and they were learning it over in europe that yes it was that he was the guy who just transferred it over and that was a part of me that was like that's a really cool bit of history that i did not know and it started off with one student who became many mm-hmm. he started an entire I love that field part was like oh sorry i'm in the wrong room he's like no 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 you're you're in the right one he's just like Okay. <laughs> he started an entire field of science on this continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is pretty incredible. Although I already never won a Nobel Prize because his problem was that he was so interested in multiple areas of science that he never devoted himself to one mm. enough to get a yeah, Nobel Prize rule, in anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of a jack of all trades in everything. Which, you know, worked out well for him, though. Mm-hmm. or badly I mean, he's got a couple he's got a couple presidents medals so i mean yep. the whole thing about like the nobel prize it comes with like a million bucks so that's like the one thing can we talk oh can we talk about the nobel prize for a second though because i thought that was a brilliant piece of historical i don't know if it's foreshadowing but it's it was a fantastic allusion to what mm-hmm. oppenheimer's story would be if you didn't know about it because they didn't really get into it too much in the movie, but it's one of those, if you know, you know things where he's talking to his friend and his friend was like, yeah, you know, maybe I'm going to get an award for this. Oh, and Oppenheimer says, oh, maybe I'll get a Nobel prize. And then be like, Nobel prize for, for making a bomb. Like that's, that's kind of <laughs> weird. And he's like, Howard Nobel and men in dynamite. Yeah. Which thing about that, which Oppenheimer seem to forget about at the time in that scene or the movie just didn't tell you he made the Nobel Prize because he was so guilty about the destructive capability of what his invention caused that he donated his fortune in the Nobel Prize just to try to make up for any semblance of the chaos he wrought with that invention mm-hmm. so he was kind of the early Oppenheimer in that regard he just he created this thing that killed so many people or or hurt so many and yeah it's just kind of funny Oppenheimer brought him up because as soon as they talked about Nobel I was like oh okay that's interesting that you bring that up yeah I know everybody probably going into this uh probably like oh this is a movie clearly about the creation of the atomic bomb and uh it ending the world war but I personally believe it is um the theme of this movie is just about morality yeah. And what side of the morality are you on? Yes, they had to make a bomb. Yes, it was to beat the Nazis. But they dropped it on Johannstead. 
bunch of civilians because there was no military target there, but they wanted to see how much maximum damage they could do to those civilians. I think the number is like over 200,000 or something like that, just under maybe. Between Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Oppenheimer afterwards saying that that was morally unjust or basically saying that was wrong to do. And the American government just sticking to their guns being like, and I bet a few of them probably did morally think it was wrong, but they can't say that they were wrong. They're the American government in the 50s. Now, the way they were thinking at the time was, we're going to kill 100,000 to save potential millions. How many of our Mm -hmm. boys or more Japanese have to die in this war before they surrender? Because neither side wants to surrender. But we have a super weapon that with one large loss of life, we can prevent potentially more or years more of this conflict dragging on. So once again, this is a hindsight thing. We don't know how long it would have been for the Japanese to surrender without the bomb, because I think they would have. I think America was winning that war. They were winning, yeah. And also, the USSR, they were very close to also um, invading Japan, or invading Tokyo at the same time. Yes, but it's just how long is this war going to drag on? Mm-hmm. Let's just end it ASAP. It, like We're all going to regret this probably but that's the thing about being in the military you got to make hard tactical decisions sometimes and even Oppenheimer as we discussed earlier a part of him I think wanted that bomb to go off because Mm -hmm. it showed people what a nuclear bomb could do and that's the whole thing right and I don't remember if it was the movie that said it or if it's just something I read later or I think it was Nolan talking about uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer Nolan believes that Oppenheimer is the most important man to have ever lived in history because of what he did (laughs) with this bomb. Because Oppenheimer, his legacy hasn't been written yet, is the crazy thing, which I believe Nolan was talking about. Oppenheimer's legacy, he's either the guy who created the weapon so bad that they only used it twice and then never used it again because... He, he, he did what he wanted. He made people realize that weapons of mass destruction create untold chaos. They're not worth it. People can arms race all they want, but never use them because we all know it's mutually assured destruction. Mm-hmm. And we haven't used them again in 80 years, even though the whole last century was basically revolved around stocking these things up, threatening to use them. We're still getting new nuclear powers, testing, threatening to yeah. use them, testing, but nobody's used it again since then so that could be Oppenheimer's legacy he's the guy who pushed us so far in warfare that we never went back and it's all about how how close can we get to peace after that or he's the guy who destroyed all life on the planet and either way we don't know yet because we're still it's still too early and that's why Nolan believes Oppenheimer is the most important man in the history of the world he either made forever peace or Killed everything. God, this movie's so good. I mean, it just makes you look through the eyes of where we were um, back in the, in the 40s and the 50s, but just also give you this great aspect of did we do the right thing and what's going to happen in the future? And I think the ending line of him saying, you know, when we said we could have chain, started a chain reaction that destroyed the world, 
And Einstein says, yes, I remember that very well. And he says, I, I believe we, we did. did. And then it ends there. I was like, you fucking brilliant director, you. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's great. Um, oh, I forgot. Kenneth Branagh's in this. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's a Christopher Nolan movie. Kenneth Branagh has to be in it. <laughs> Branagh's really good in it. See, the thing about Oppenheimer to me, which I was thinking about the other day, I am, as longtime listeners probably know, I'm a massive fan of science fiction. And one of the go-to stories of science fiction over the last couple hundred years, the first science fiction book is generally considered Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is probably the first story to do this also. Is, I guess it is sci-fi. It's, the, it's generally considered the first sci-fi novel. But no, yeah, I just the, I thought about it where it was like, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> yeah, but my point is the one of the crux of sci-fi things is the mad scientist who creates something which extends beyond his control and creates chaos which he could never have foretold. That's a staple story of the genre. I've seen it done so often over over my life. And, but this is worse. <laughs> Because it's real. Oppenheimer was the mad scientist who gave humanity the power to destroy itself. Mm-hmm. He opened Pandora's box and it's like that, uh... and, and then let it out of his hands. The moment the military mm-hmm. got it, he lost dis- control of his creation and couldn't decide what to do with it anymore. And then as much as he tried to put it back in the box, he spent the rest of his life trying, but he couldn't. And that's the that's the tragedy of it. And to me, that's also why Oppenheimer is is the quintessential mad scientist story. To me, it was his creation that, if you really think about it, every apocalypse story in science fiction, most of the best ones, trace themselves back to Oppenheimer. In the last hundred years, basically all of humanity's story about how we're going to end ourselves traces itself back to the nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. And even the second biggest thing about how we end ourselves is usually artificial intelligence, which, how do we do that? Oh, we give them control of nuclear bombs. So even in those ones, it comes yeah. back to Oppenheimer. The next biggest threat we can think of maybe is biological warfare. I don't know. But I'm just in, in science fiction for the last 80 years, the most scary thing we can think of for how we're going to end ourselves basically always goes back to nuclear power or the bomb specifically or the someone who has the power to unleash that bomb. So he basically created our doomsday stories for the last 80 years. It's like to go back on that mad scientist thing, just the yeah. quote Jurassic Park is like, you're too busy to think about rather you could instead of think about rather you should. <laughs> yes. I think about that. Stuff like that. Yeah. Often. Funny thing, you bring up the AI thing. I think James Cameron recently quoted something saying, because when he made Terminator back in 1984 and just how people are afraid of AI taking over everything, I think he said something like, I fucking warned you. <laughs> like I told yes. you years ago, you didn't listen. And I believe Nolan also said that this film is a parallel to artificial intelligence too. Mm-hmm. I recall he had an interview where he said something along the lines of, this film is a warning to Silicon Valley about their algorithms and artificial intelligence. And he says, don't just pretend the algorithm is this thing that exists 
independently of you. People control this thing. Take some responsibility for it. Whatever chaos it brings politically or in, in like practically in people's lives, that's your fault. Just because, just because it's kind of operating on its own or artificial intelligence can maybe gain sentience, the people who built it need to take responsibility for the havoc that ensues. And that's part of the point. Oppenheimer, he created a weapon of mass destruction, but he never denied his part in it. He was always pretty open about, yeah, you know, I did this and I regret this. But today's people creating the next big problems of the future, they're too afraid to take responsibility. They, they just say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, this, this is a thing. I, you know, I own it, but it's not my fault. God, so. we're all going to die soon. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think this movie is, it's, it's epic and not in terms of spectacle. I mean, there's a lot of spectacle in it, but it's just epic in its beauty. I think it's just an amazing amount of the a culmination of both directing, acting, the music, how it's shot, and where most directors would have ended the movie probably around the initial test blast. And I think we get that extra hour of Act 3 and the effects of it afterwards. I think it's just, I think that's much better. I don't want that to happen to every movie. But I think the fact that it happened to Oppenheimer and it's a great point in not just American history, but in world history about what happened to him afterwards. I think it's really important for everybody to understand that and what happened. The movie did start dipping for me at that point after the bomb and the third act starts. I did feel a dip there. I'm like, oh, for sure. We're still going. Oh, this is going to be. I mean, it's a three hour movie. You're going to hear you're going to feel a dip. Yeah, but then it it got me back into it. By the end, I was fully mm-hmm. on board. But there was a point there where I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And once again, Didn't that's have to go to the bathroom because, once. I mean, happy about that. But I also had this thing about not drinking at the movies just because of that. Oh like, yes, you do do that. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. So what else is I gonna say here? I mean, we should probably talk about the blast. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's good. Didn't talk about it at all. <laughs> That's a good place to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the blast. First of all, Josh Peck is there somehow. <laughs> He's just casted there. That's yeah. pretty awesome. Just to see like he was in a couple a, an actor who yeah an actor who we grew up on in Drake and Josh obviously just kind yeah. of like a childhood actor uh, of our generation and just to see him in probably one of the biggest films of our generation. That's pretty cool to see. And just a part of me was like, that's awesome. I think he also stars on How I Met Your Father. Yes, he's on that as well. I'm glad he's been doing stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah. Anyway. He's done he's done quite a bit for himself. He was always uh, talented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's good. He's good in this. Yeah. I so, love I love how the the tension of like if anything goes wrong, don't push that button or something like you see a spike because there's that near zero chance you're like holy fuck, this could end the world even though I know it's not because I'm watching the movie that's about <laughs> real life. Yeah, that trinity test very intense stuff mm-hmm. and this is one of the best jump scares i've ever seen just yeah. the bomb goes off it's just the light we hang on to it watch the explosion for a very long time oppenheimer looks upon his creation and you can tell immediately he's like well shit <laughs> this oh boy mm-hmm. i i unleashed like i said i opened pandora's box with this one Although I he puts him, death, the destroyer this, of worlds. Yeah. Boom! 
Mm-hmm. Well, there, it's it's great, and some people might be confused about that, but it's just known as like the phenomenon of rolling thunder, where the speed of light is so much faster than the speed of sound. Uh, not to say that the speed of sound is slow, but it's 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 just what happens. Uh, you'll see it, something in the distance. Yeah, you'll see something in the distance go off. Just like this is a great example of it, where the bomb will go off, and then a few seconds later, the shock wave and the sound will come off. I mean, it's also just like if you think about fireworks, you'll see it blow up. Uh, you'll see it go off, and then like uh, maybe a few seconds later, you'll hear the sound of it going off. It's yeah. really strange, but it's also that happens in a lot of movies as well. With um, I just showed Joe a clip of this, but uh, in Fury, there's a sniper shot where the uh, man gets hit in the head, and then you hear the sniper shot ring out. Um, it's it's a weird phenomenon, but it's just physics, and I love seeing that in film. It wasn't really popular for most of Hollywood because I don't think they were. I don't think they really, not that they didn't care, but it just wasn't a priority for them, but it's become more and more popular with like diehard directors to be like, no, we're going to do this rolling thunder effect. It just adds this gravitas to this. Yeah, it adds gravitas and it's also people appreciate realism. But in this specific case, I love the moment of silence before the boom. The theater protracted so quiet. Yes, dead silent. So quiet. It's not that there was no sound from the explosion, but there was just no sound from the people in the movie as well. Yeah. Just like even the reaction is just like, oh, my God. And Jack Wade's character was like, no, the windshield will protect me. And everybody now is like, no, <laughs> like you need more than just that, buddy. But uh, I, I thought that was just like a funny moment. It also reminded me of the explosion. If anybody wait, wait, remembers I, I the remember- movie. What was the line? It's like, yeah, the, the windshield will protect me yeah. from the, the from windshield the blast. Is UV it's like, rays. Well, yeah. And then the guy is like, what's going to protect you from the windshield? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard, I'm surprised the windshield didn't explode because I heard that like 10 or, or 20 miles over in the town near uh, where uh, it was blown up in New Mexico, that windows were shattered. Right. From just the blast and people like what the fuck's going on and they couldn't tell him obviously well it's military so it's probably bulletproof glass but not that town but just like a regular ass town so it's just but you're right about his windshield where yeah it's probably bulletproof glass but that explosion reminded me does anybody remember the movie dinosaur (laughs) from 2000 (laughs) it's a disney movie and it's about it's basically just about uh what happened to the dinosaurs when the meteor hit and there's this great shot a great scene of the meteor hitting earth and then it makes contact with the earth you don't hear anything at first you don't but you see it hit it's this super bright light and then you see it's actually lands in the water and then it slowly comes towards the pov of the dinosaur it's a disney movie everybody's an animal and then Mm -hmm. you hear like the initial shock wave it's a great like dramatic scene for or a tense scene for like a children's movie it was that movie, too, that gave Disney the confidence to start doing full CG, like, animal characters. Like, without Dinosaur, we wouldn't have gotten live-action Lion King, which, you know, some people <laughs> would not have liked. But uh, technically speaking and visually, it's it's a great piece of art. It's a yes. terrible movie, but <laughs> visually it's good. It does ring some bells, I think. I'll show you after. <laughs> yeah. So you were talking about Can't sound show design. it here because of, you know, copyright clips. Yeah. You were talking about sound design earlier, and I thought great detail was in the lead up of the bomb. You hear a Geiger counter picking up in intensity more and yeah. more and more just before the test runs. 
which was my favorite sound design detail. Also, the moments when he's imagining total nuclear apocalypse and he's losing touch with reality, the backgrounds warping and shuddering around him multiple mm-hmm. times, and he sees the he sees the drops on the map, the shock waves. Great stuff there. I thought those were some of the most impactful moments of the movie was when he was picturing Armageddon in mm-hmm. his own mind. Um, specifically the scene when everyone's hailing him as a hero, as the, uh, the father of the bomb, and uh, he's got to give that speech about like, yeah, we won. And you can tell he's just dying inside, even though he's mm-hmm. pumping up the entire That's crowd. my favorite that's one of my favorite scenes because I think it's just so well edited and acted as well, but just shows it's a great representation of what anxiety is. Yes. Just like you just lose all focus. You feel like the earth is shaking. You can't really understand what's going on. Yeah. Cause the way I took it was the scene before the couple scenes before he's like, it's like we've said multiple times. He kind of wanted the bomb to go off just because mm-hmm. he wanted people to see what it could do. But then he heard about, the casualty count and he was kind of waiting in anxiety oh we're, well first of all it was like oh are they actually going to do it and then he heard they did it and was like oh they actually did this twice mm-hmm. and then he heard the casualty count yeah because they never he heard, told him if he was they were actually going to yeah. do it or not and then he heard the video of describing what life was like for the people who had the bomb dropped on them and what the survivors had to endure in the aftermath and then by the time he's got to give that speech, oh, yeah, we won World War Two, Yay me. Yay. You know, everyone at Los Alamos who researched this thing, mm-hmm. we won the war. And then he starts picturing the slaughtered in the <sighs> aftermath of his bomb. And it like that's the moment he broke in the movie mm-hmm. when it finally all came crashing down. Like, what did I do? You see, like, the skin coming off of one of the actor's faces. You're like, oh, God. And you don't yeah. really see it because it's such blinding light. But you're yeah. just like, Jesus Christ. And I think uh, another highlight of this movie, for me personally, is I'm glad we didn't see any, like, on on the ground, like, war footage. I'm glad it was mostly yeah. just people behind the scenes. Not to say it would have taken away from the movie, but I'm just glad most of the fo- all the focus was just on the billing and the bomb because I think we've seen so much of it that like what more can they add? Well, I bet you most more movies if they were feeling gratuitous probably would have cut to Hiroshima or Nagasaki and shown the bomb Mm -hmm. being used, which, okay, first Nolan probably didn't do that because he didn't want to look gratuitous or disrespectful. Like he's showing these real life mass killings as entertainment, but also most of this movie has been reported that he didn't have any CGI shots in them. Mm-hmm. Everything in this movie is practical visual effects, maybe barring some odd CGI touch-ups, but everything you see in frame mm-hmm. was done practically, which would have been hard to do Hiroshima and Nagasaki practically when he already did the Trinity test once. You saw the test. There was the tension of, oh, is it going to destroy the world? Which, I mean, Mm -hmm. we knew it didn't, but it was still tense because they didn't know. But we already got the bomb going off once, practically. We didn't need it again. Multiple times. It's And everybody, it's such a famous event. Everybody knows the horrors of 
We know. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, it's so bad that there are still imprints of people's, like, it looks like shadows of people still staining the concrete floor. And that's not because they were burned into it. It was because they, their bodies blocked the concrete's initial blast so that the, like, atomic bombs, like, explosion couldn't bleach the concrete. That's like the scientific way of saying it. And that's mm. really disturbing when I learned that fact the, just like a like couple days ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically a shadow and it's still there. You can go visit and you just see like Pete. It's almost, and they, I think they describe it as like their souls are like forever burned into Japan or something. It's just like heavy it's stuff. Up. It's like yeah. visiting Dunkirk or the beach of Normandy. Just like, or like, you can just feel, or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You just feel the impact of it. Just, horrible shit that happened and those all happened around world war ii jesus <laughs> one of the worst times in recent history it was, a, it was a dark time for sure it was a terrible time yeah oh man but yeah it's just the horror of everything that he created starts mm-hmm. going back to and that's i also love the scene when he's talking with harry truman again when afterwards when he's on his way out or he's talking to Harry Truman, he's like, I feel like I have blood on my hands and Truman's like, well, I'm the one who ordered the bombs dropped. Yeah. So it's not about you. He I gave mean, him a tissue. That's and so then walked, funny. He gave him a tissue, but then as he walked out, don't let that cry baby back in mm. you. Yeah. He very famously, I'm surprised how, not surprised, but I mean, it's just, it's biopics, right? So they're never fully true to life. I heard that's uh, true but, though. I that's very true. He very famously kicked him out and never wanted to talk to him again. I'm very shocked about how accurate this movie is in terms yes. of everything. Yes. Like even the affairs, even the small stuff as well. Like all of um Oppenheimer's friends. Um yeah, I'm just the amount of just dedication to tell this story as truthful as possible is is really good. Yes. I just wanted to skip back a second and talk about how brilliant the visual effects work in this movie is because mm-hmm. when I talked about this before, even recently where real filmmaking makes a big difference in the way I'm watching the film. We talked about it specifically in the context of action and that when I'm watching someone like Tom Cruise perform real stunts, it hits a lot differently than knowing this actor was filmed against a backdrop of a green screen. This isn't real. What I'm watching has no tangibility. This is very much like that. When I see that nuclear blast go off, when I see the atoms, or I don't even know what the other stuff is, but when I see those kind of things swirling around in Oppenheimer's mind, and I know they filmed something practically, to do that just seeing what's in his mind if it was compu- it, yeah. like if it was computer generated they could make it look great i w- i have no doubt they could make it look great but the fact that they filmed something real even for those scenes they didn't need to it made it feel tangible in a way that put you in his mind you're seeing the possibilities and i'm nearly there with you it's like i can reach out and grab it because i can it is a real thing you're showing me so the fact that this was shot on film too i I think adds a lot to it i love how biopics are usually considered more of a low budget kind of thing like oh yeah you know they're not like it's real life so we're not gonna go that hard but nolan's like no 
biopic has a full-on practical nuclear explosion, uh, film the whole thing on 70mm IMAX. I think he said the final film strip was 11 miles long. Yeah. I mean, there's a famous promotional video where he's standing beside the entire 70 minutes, and it's just this hulking. It looks like a dinner table, like a gigantic one, just this round table of 7 millimeter film. It's ridiculous. Yes. I did not see it in 7 millimeter, uh, 70 millimeter, because I don't know. There is a theater here in Toronto, but I didn't grab one because they were probably all gone in 10 minutes. But I did see it in IMAX and just. Man, just wow. want, just it's be and it, it was. I will give a little bit nitpicky. There is sometimes in the same scene, the aspect ratio would change from IMAX to just um, widescreen in mm. between shots, and I don't. To me, that's really distracting. It will go from it. It happened a lot with. Whenever they were outside and it was just uh, Killian Murphy, uh, Murphy and Emily Blunt just talking on the ranch, it would just be like they they would walk up to the scene it'd be an IMAX and then when it's just them, it's like a widescreen shot. It's really weird. I don't like it when directors do that, but you're not going to see that on another viewing. So it's just, I'm just being more picky and maybe because they need to get this shot done quickly and shooting on IMAX is really hard. It's loud, too. So. <laughs> I also think it's partially down to what he's trying to convey per shot, because to my understanding, widescreen is more of a landscape thing and IMAX is more of a height thing. So in these between these shots, I want this yeah. shot to look more landscape. I want to get more height on this shot. I think it's also down to that thing as well. Like mm-hmm. I, I'd like to assume it's an intentional choice, at least in part. It was definitely intentional, but not like as distracting as, say, in a Transformer movie. Where in that one, it's like every single other shot. It's like widescreen, not widescreen, widescreen, not widescreen. Yeah. It happens sometimes in this movie, but it's not as egregious. Yes. Whereas in the bigger scenes, they are just mostly IMAX the whole time. But they're just sometimes they go back and forth and just be really weird. But I have an eye for it, so most people aren't going to fucking get it. But Top Gun Maverick did not do that. When they went full landscape, they did full landscape. Interesting. <laughs> I just want to say that uh, Killian Murphy's voice in this movie is captivating. He's very, he's not soft-spoken, but he's more reserved personality. Isn't super energetic or anything, but you're still captivated by this guy the entire time because his eyes are so striking. You can see all the gears turning in this guy's head and his voice is just, ooh, I want to listen to you. (laughs) Like, let me look in those eyes and listen to you all day long. Like he and I think Oppenheimer was probably like that in real life too, because he was pretty clearly a good leader and director, and that's why they he's picked him good. for the job. So I think he's a very captivating personality and actor. Mm-hmm. He's very underrated. Um, he was in. I mean, he's worked with Christopher Nolan before in the past. Uh, with Inception and the Dark Knight trilogy and even in Dunkirk, like most of Christopher Nolan's stuff he's been in, but he's mostly just a side character. And I was really happy to see him get the main part in a Christopher Nolan movie because, again, I've been a Peaky Blinders fan uh, ever since like the fourth season came out. Uh, My parents got me hooked and uh, 
he's a phenomenal. You would love him in Peaky Blinders. I it's one it's the sure. one of those BBC shows where the season's like only six episodes long, but they're like an hour, and they it, it's uh, one of those okay. things where it's called like a it's kind of like Sherlock, and that yeah, way it's yeah. like series one, series two. It's their way of doing things, but it it it's very well done. You would love it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll see it eventually. Well, I think that's about all I've got to say on this one. Just yeah, phenomenal movie. Um, I'm going a- to make the prediction now, without knowing the other films that are coming out this year, this will be the movie that Christopher Nolan finally wins an Oscar. That's just my prediction. I feel like this is his magnum opus. If it's not for directing, if it's not for writing, if it's not for best it's got to be for best picture so far. This is my, I can't think of a movie that's coming out in terms of size besides maybe Dune part two, which I doubt cause it's a sequel and it didn't yeah. win the first time, yeah. but this, this is my guess. And I know for a fact, Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt and Robert Downey Jr. will be at least nominated. Right. Okay. And maybe even of- Matt Damon. Maybe. maybe. Okay. I thought of a few more things to say, just as like, little a couple critiques i I, sometimes i felt like well because you said with the writing and it reminded me that some of the writing in some of the sequences felt like not like characters talking about stuff but nearly like i was being lectured to on a like (laughs) like a university class and they're just kind of spouting exposition about stuff so some of the writing was a little clunky like that and the other thing was i don't think we talked about how you talked about a little bit at the beginning how fast-paced the editing was. For me, they kept that up basically the whole time. This is like a breakneck pace of editing, and sometimes that was like, mm-hmm. whoa, every scene is going by so fast. There's so many cuts happening here. It's crazy, but also we got a lot to cover, and it's making the movie feel faster. So I, I get it, but yikes, you're giving me whip last year. Yeah. So fast. But <laughs> I love this movie. It's Maybe my favorite of the year so far. I'm still forming my list, but it's... Yeah, it's up there. It's uh, one out of two for me. What's the other one? Either this or uh, Spider-Verse for me. Or Spider-Verse. I think... Yeah. John Wick 4 is up there for me, too. (laughs) Oh, yes, John Wick 4 as well. Spider... I didn't like Spider-Verse as much as John Wick, I think. Like, it's... Really? I think it's just because it... I don't know. It's just because it was a part one... I think it didn't wrap up enough on its own merits for me to be like, I just don't like when I don't like when movies, uh, depend heavily on part two Mm -hmm. or, or a sequel like spider verse one is great because it's tells itself contained Mm -hmm. thing and it just ends and spider verse two is like, I think they left a lot dangling and I'm like the themes of the movie didn't really feel like they got hammered home because they depend so much on how it resolves in the next movie. I'm just like, eh, it's like it, it's good. It just didn't, it just didn't hit me the way I wanted. But uh, what's your favorite Lord of the Rings movie? <laughs> I'm kidding. I that one wrapped up fine. <laughs> I'm making a yeah. joke. His favorite's Two Towers, but that one wrapped up fine enough. But left a lot for more. No, I hear you. Yeah. It, it's I, definitely I it like that part one. Yeah. I, and you're not saying it's like you love that no, movie, but it's, no, it's not great, like it's, it's not movie. your. It's, like, it's definitely, yeah. it's definitely like in my top for this year so yeah. far. I'm just well, those I'm are just the top three for a, me as well: John Wick Four, Oppenheimer, and uh, Spider Man. 
And who knows? Yeah. Maybe Barbie. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, yeah. we'll see. Uh, I've heard some this... great things, but I've also heard that it's very political. I The worst things I've heard about Barbie are from the same people who hate every movie that's uh, female-led okay. or directed. Mm. Some people just don't like the tone of it, and they're like, yeah, it's not for me, which is I'm going to fine. see... But the most strong of the actors have fun. I'll probably go see it. I just don't know. Yeah. When. I'm going for uh, Greta Gerwig, Margot Robbie, and Ryan Gosling. Oh, I always forget Greta Gerwig directed it. This movie can't be bad. <laughs> She's directing it. <laughs> I'm hoping for a fun time, at the very least. Mm-hmm. But we're not here to talk about Barbie. We're here to talk about Oppenheimer, which I think is a watch ASAP. Barbenheimer? Don't you know from the internet if you talk about Oppenheimer, you have to talk about Barbie and vice versa? <laughs> I know. We did that. Twice. <laughs> uh, I love the meme. It was there was something too where it was like the Dark Knight and another movie was released the same day, and it was like those movies walk so Barb and Hyper can run. <laughs> it was something like that. Oh, what That's was that funny. movie? I can't. I don't even know. I have so, to save somewhere. You know, definitely if you haven't seen Oppenheimer yet, watch it in IMAX or AVX or the best possible viewing presentation you can see for it. Hmm. Nolan didn't have to go this hard on a biopic, but he made it one of the most epic real-life stories I've ever seen about, to him, the most important man who ever lived, and he's basically, he's nearly convinced me of that as well. Yep. Just because of the legacy this guy made in his wake, and mm-hmm. it's, this is one of those movies you come out of thinking that it's felt like it's so epic, it feels like it has to be fictional. Mm-hmm. But it happened within the lifetime of people I I know, like both my grandmothers were alive during this period of history. Contemporary yeah. with Oppenheimer. He made, like, oh. he made boring politics epic. You know what I mean? Like, it's yes. just, you can't do that. <laughs> like, it's not, like, possible for most people, but yeah. Yes. I loved it's, it. It's ridiculously good. <laughs> yeah. Just I think yeah, he's going to win this year. I'm putting I put money on that even though I don't have any. Uh <laughs> anyway, you can find me at Ryan Walker official on YouTube, TikTok and on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook at Thoughtly Media. Also, check out the Close Up with Ryan and Joe Facebook page for latest updates on the show. If you listen to us in audio, check out our YouTube channel. And if you're on YouTube, find us anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. We hope to see you on the next Close Up with Ryan and Joe, where we discuss why Hollywood is failing in general right now. Till next time. Take care.